0: forward slash phishing test now NoBefore before wants to thank you for listening to the show and i want to thank them for sponsoring it they are the provider of the world's largest security awareness and simulated phishing platform be sure to take advantage of their free phishing test which you can find at nobefore.com forward slash phishing test think NoBefore before for your security training from the cyber hub bunker in studio You're listening to the CISO Talk Podcast. No sales, no bullshit, just straight talk. Straight talk. And now for your host and CISO, James Azar. Hey folks, welcome to another episode of the CISO Talk Podcast. We have a great show for you guys today. I'm very, very excited about my guest. I got to tell you, first time I spoke to Jason, I felt like we were, um, you know, brothers lost from another mother but before we get started on today's show make sure you do subscribe to our podcast right now if you're watching us on youtube subscribe turn on the notification bell right here below should be right over here or here one of those places turn on the notification bell and subscribe that way you'll get notified every time we post a brand new episode if you're listening on your favorite podcast listening platform make sure to subscribe and give us five stars rating please five stars helps push our content Higher and higher. I want to thank all the people listening from Africa, Europe, and the Middle East. We are in the top 20 in the technology podcast sector. Thanks to your loyal listening. So please, uh, uh, I'm, I'm grateful for that. So make sure to subscribe and share. You can find all of our content on our website at cyberhubpodcast.com. So you can go there and check out all of our other podcasts, including all some of our uh, exclusive live Stuff and joining me for today's CISO talk episode, Jason Loomis. He's the CISO over at Mind Body. How's it going, Jason?
1: Going oh, great, James. How are you doing?
0: You know, I'm doing amazing. I'm grateful for another day in the greatest country on the planet. So I can't really complain. Like I try to, find, you can't find reasons to complain when you live in our country.
1: That's I second that.
0: It is, uh, you know, it's it's, it's it's great. So, Jason, kind of as we get started on today's episode, if, if you don't mind, would you give our audience a little background into how you kind of got started in cyber and what was your career path um, kind of in your journey? Yeah, sure. You know, um,
1: <clears throat> like most good stories, it's kind of like in the vein of inter- the interconnectedness of all things. Um, I'm sure a lot of us in security weren't going through high school and college thinking, hey, I would love to get into security. I didn't even mm. know if it existed back then. But, you know, it was a confluence of things going for, you know, I'll throw out just some keywords and not bore you with the long story. It was a combination of uh, a wedding in Nevada, a green card, uh, Duke Nukem, and MCSE nt T four oh. you combined all those things together and all these disparate events that got me into technology. And then that was about obviously I'm dating myself. That was about 20 years ago. Then about 10 years ago, I pivoted into security through another confluence events, which you know, isn't kind of the same words, University of Oregon, uh, beer. And probably my favorite quote that got me into this was, dude, I wrote that from my mentor, Paul Love, um, who we met at the, in our MBA program. And he ended up, I was we were chatting, and I'm like, he's like, what are you into these days? Oh, I'm reading this book. you probably never heard of, it, heard of it called Visible Ops. And he looks at me like I'm crazy, and he's like, dude, I wrote that. And then that's a smart <laughs> day friendship. It's been around for 10 years, and really, you know, that and some other events. Um, I pivoted over to security about 10 years ago, and been loving every day of it since.
0: For those who don't know Paul, Paul was on the show. In fact, I think six episodes or three episodes back from this one, I had him on Veteran November.
1: That's right. I I listened to that podcast. It was great.
0: And so you guys can actually um, um, uh, go back and listen to Paul. Paul was uh, very insightful on on that one episode. Um, Really kind of, uh, um, I want to say, a very interesting guy. Um, And that's saying it mildly.
1: Yeah, I I would call him a jerk because he's a little bit of an overachiever. So standing next to him, you know, I would get picked last for kickball because he's always the rock star, you know, guy's written 10 books, wrote a book with Gene Kim, but that's why he's my mentor and I'm his mentee because I look up to him a lot.
0: Yeah, Paul's Paul's absolutely brilliant. Let's, you know, for today's episode, uh, before we get in and talk a little bit about leadership, I do want to talk to you um, a little bit more about, you know, documentation and cyber and you know one of the things that we often talk about is is writing policies writing up documentation i i've got a right now i have a survey on linkedin um that i'm asking you know other cissos which is you know how do you buy do you talk to your peers do you read reviews and so forth and one of the common stuff below of some of the comments of some of the participants in the survey so far of my unscientific scientific survey on LinkedIn that I will use as a way to, you know, reach some level of conclusion based on my question is documentation. And let's talk a little bit about documentation. So what's your secret to proper documentation?
1: Um, you can start with, I can start with the importance of documentation in any size organization. And nobody ever wants to hear that. Nobody ever wants to start with writing. They want to do, they want an action. They go, let's go start securing things. Even if it's a one person team at a hundred person company, and you're the first guy that's going to take security under your wing. Everyone starts with this idea that I need to go do something. I don't want to write a policy that no one's going to read. I don't want to write these standards that no one's going to read. But it starts with that. You have to start by, and this is of security term and administrative control. You know, you start with something that you say you're going to do and then you can start going down the path of, okay, let's implement some technical controls around that whether it's detective or preventative, but it all starts with documentation. And you know, my secret is that you should, you should treat documentation as a creative exercise, not a, I'm an accountant and I'm writing down a bunch of steps or a bunch of things that we do because it really truly is. And this will segue nicely into leadership conversation. I feel like it does. Um, because getting a team to be creative as a leader is challenging. And there's good ways to do it. Or in my opinion, I have these good ideas of how to do it. But the um, <clears throat> when I write my documentation, the best analogy in the world, and I, also I stole this from Paul Love, but I swear I, I've taken it and made it 2.0 because <laughs> I, <have> <laughs> I have a full process of how you can do this. And it's not as hard as it's going to sound. But you, if you think of documentation like a pizza, like uh, documentation around, let's say, my company, MindBody, makes pizzas. If you think about it, that that's what the business does. A policy statement would be very simple in one sentence. It would say, My Body will make pizzas. Done. That is my policy. In fact, at MindBody, my cybersecurity policy is two pages and 14 statements. And I hand that to auditors every year. And I hand that to our customers. Hey, what's your security policies? Here. We do these 14 things. Very simple high level, single statement about what your intent in security is, that's a good policy. And that's that first step of the pizza. It's like, hey, we make pizza. Your your next level down standards is where you really get into a little more of the mechanics of it. And it's a it's okay, you know what our pizzas are going to be round, because you know, who wants a square pizza? Our pizzas are going to be round. They're going to be certain.
0: People from Chicago want square pizzas.
1: That's right. I actually like I am a Chicago I guess I go both sides. I'm Chicago and New York, but if I if I had to choose, I'm gonna go Chicago
0: style. I am going New York every time. Each and every time. <laughs> New LinkedIn survey. What's a better pizza, Chicago style or New York style?
1: I'm um, I'm gonna bet it's gonna be a 50-50 across the board.
0: Well, we're gonna find so, out because after this episode airs, there will be a survey on my LinkedIn page at James J Azar where people can vote on whether they want Chicago or New York-style pizza.
1: Well, great, and you just brought up a great point about standards. Standards, you don't want to also tell people how to do something. Let's say you like Chicago and you want to be able to have a standard that supports both Chicago-style and New York-style pizzas. At the end of the day, it's pizza. Yeah, we have some security guidelines like uh, health and safety. Well, your pizza needs to be 140 degrees. It needs to be served in a cardboard box so people don't burn themselves. That's an example of a good standard. That standard supports, hey, you want thick crust, like Chicago-style deep dish, or do you want really thin crust, round New York style? If I write my, stock, my standard right, I can still get my compliance down with making sure it's the right temperature. I can get it so that it's not harming other people when they're grabbing it by specifying, hey, it needs to be in a cardboard box. But I'm leaving a lot of flexibility for individual pizza makers to write their own, you recognize this word out there, guidelines. Hey, here's how, or process. Here's how I make my pizza. Oh, I take my gloves on, I roll the dough, I put the sauce, I put the pizza on, I stick it in the oven for this many things. But security, if you really focus on just those two, the first two, the very high level policy, and then a very simple standard that just sets the security controls in place, you're going to save yourself a lot of time with these crazy documents and policies that you see that include process. And those are the bane of any, should be the bane of any security person's existence. They're the bane of mine. Cause process can change daily process can change with technology, but if you write your policies and standards, a very specific way of keeping them very simple and high level, the change frequency on those is a lot less. So like I just wrote a standard that supported Chicago style and New York style, you know, I don't care with security. I care about these specific things. And you'll get a lot of another tip I have too is which a lot of security people don't do enough is you need to be able to defend. It needs to be defensible against your auditors. People a lot of times are either afraid to defend against an auditor and argue, or even external counsel. So if you've ever worked with external counsel and had, as soon as my counsel brings external counsel in, for some reason they think they're Moses on the Mount, follow whatever, do whatever he says, cause you know, that's external counsel, they're right. Uh-uh. You don't need to listen to them.
0: Well, you brought up a good point, which is you need to be able to defend the policy guideline and processes you've put in place against counsel if you can't do it then they're not the Moses that knows it all because you could be right and they can be wrong but you're unable to stand up for what you've put down on a piece of paper right kind of like anything you write down if you want to argue your point you have to be able to stand behind the policy you put in place otherwise you know you're you're, yeah every time someone from outside is going to come and say you should do this and if you automatically do that even though it, it doesn't, you know, work within, you know, your grant scheme of things, it can create issues in, within your policy and documentation.
1: Yeah, and yeah, um, true. And external auditors and, and external counsel and auditors are doing just what we're doing. It's their opinion. It's all based on just well, that's what lawyers do. They read the law and then, hey, here's how I, I interpret that law. Auditors do the same thing. Here's the PCI control, here's the high trust control. This is my interpretation as auditor of what they're, what you need to do for this. You can absolutely defend and argue that. So for example, in MindBody, I took a 44,000 word policy that combined policy standards and process. I still hate that people put process in in policies and reduced it down to 17,000 words. And each standard is less than three pages. So if someone wants to know, hey, what do we do for vulnerability management? I have maybe 19 sentences statements that are all measurable, definable, very simple, basic statements that are my standards. And then each one of those becomes a control statement that you can measure. I know this sounds like it, hearing myself, going, oh, this is not a lot of work. Not really. It took us a team of six of us. Yes, it was three full days, but we did a three day offsite locked in a hotel conference room where you just write. And I have this whole tactical approach to it. That's uh, you put stuff up on walls and you break it down in index cards. You just write and you peer review each other's writing which will come up again when I talk about leadership, the importance of peer review and some leadership tactics when you're making decisions. Um, I have this whole process and you come out three days later and you've got 95% complete new policies and standards that are defensible and have passed every audit I've been through.
0: Yeah. I spoke to Mark Hopped a while ago. He's the CISO over at data bank. And we talked about auditors because unfortunately he has to deal with external counsel and external auditors, I think more than any one of us would ever like to deal with, right? Being that he's the CISO over at data bank and when people want to do business with data centers, they tend to want to bring the Calvary in to make sure that, you know, everything is set in, in, in place, especially around kind of, you know, security and, 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 and whatnot. And he he brought up a bunch of good points about working with auditors, and one of them was just what you talked about, is they're coming in with their interpretation, with their idea of what the law is. You just have to know that your policy supports the overall court or regulating body's interpretation of it, not that person's, right? If you're able to back up your policy with saying, yeah, that might be your definition of it, but that's not how the regulator or the court sees it then that kind of changes the discussion at that point.
1: Yes, absolutely. You know, so there is a there is some, you do need to know your, which any good CISO should, or anybody at my level running this exercise, you do, do need to know your compliance requirements. So another part of this three-day exercise is we went through and tore apart the PCI Rock, which is the report on compliance, which details all. Everything an auditor looks for, if you don't know what that is, go look for it. It's 350 pages, but it will tell you every single piece of evidence and piece of documentation an auditor looks for in a PCI audit. HITRUST has the same equivalent. And we went through and pulled that out and said, what is every single, for every control, what are they looking for in documentation? And we match that up to our final product. So literally, you can go look at the PCI and say, oh, it's control 12.3. We map it through this master control list, which is a Excel spreadsheet that points to every standard statement. And says, oh, this one, 12.3, maps to, oh, we have that in Identity and Access Management, and it's our third statement, IAM-3. So that process of creating standards, the standards and getting rid of this process BS that you need to do, and just say, "Where is it say that we're going to do this in PCI or Trust?" that also gives you that master mapping. So anytime an auditor comes in and says, well, you don't have this, I can say, no, I do. It's right here on this page, on this standard.
0: So you bring up a very, um, very good point. I kind of want to talk a little bit about that from an idea of different organizations have different standards. They use different policies. Um, it's, It's a huge challenge for us as security practitioners. I think it's part of the reason why there's still a large disconnect between security and the board. Mm -hmm. is a predominant amount of board members don't serve on one singular board, but rather serve on multiple boards. And while they hear the same message from every CMO, CFO, COO, CTO, CIO, they hear different messages from every single CISO. And so they're unable to really, as a board member, properly evaluate security in every company or understand the risk being taken on because we haven't standardized it. So how do we how do we get over that challenge in your opinion?
1: Wow. <clears throat> you don't, uh, you don't ask easy questions.
0: No, I don't. I don't. I'm sorry. Um, but Paul was able to handle my, my hard questions pretty easily. <laughs> you know, I'm just saying, <laughs> Oh, is this, is this where I can phone a friend?
1: <laughs> <laughs> I, uh, I, 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 I'm very reluctant to use the word framework here, to say there needs to be a documentation framework. But there are some frameworks that are successful, in my opinion, that are easy for even small companies. I'll give a good example. My favorite security framework is the CIS-20. So if you follow a, a I, don't, I know I'm using the word simplistic, but please don't take CIS-20 as simplistic. But it's more a real-world, pragmatic approach to cybersecurity controls of what you can do as an organization. And then they make it so that a normal, everyday Clark Kent system administrator can understand what I need to do to get there. Versus you go and try to throw NIST at somebody or ISO, their head, will, some, well, their head will explode if they're not familiar with security and frameworks. And they're so complex and so vast. If you made a very simple approach, and CIS is also a tiered approach, where it kind of, in a way, you could say it takes the pizza approach. It says, hey, start with these first six. You know, if you could do these six, you'll reduce risk by 86%. And even those six are then hey, here's a high level of it. It says hardware inventory, but underneath it, there's some more details like standards underneath that and takes kind of a tiered approach to it. So if you did something like that within a documentation framework for policies and standards, I think that could work. And if you give me a hotel room with about five guys, give me about two weeks, I guarantee I could build one.
0: Yeah, I mean, I'm a big supporter of CIS 20. In fact, I think most CISOs in the two years i've been doing the podcast that i have been on we often talk more about cis 20 than we do let's say for example nist or iso um, because it is one more practical number two it's it's easier to build action items and number three it, it it's essentially your foundation and like any good program you want to have a good foundation. And if you don't have a good foundation, then you probably don't have stable security.
1: Yeah, I couldn't agree more. I mean, if just every small to large, any organization, you know, gets those first six in place, which, you know, it's a struggle for, it's a struggle for my organization. We've been struggling with number one and two, which is hardware and software inventory control, which everyone, I'm sure anybody listening to this right now is shaking their head. Yeah, it's a struggle for most organizations. But if you get these first, you know, to start on these six, you're 85%, you know, and it's been, Study after study has proven the Australian eight, which follows the same model, you know, showed that reduction of 85 percent in cybersecurity risk. It's just a great, easy way to understand security and to explain it to executives compared to explaining this.
0: True. You know, we talk about frameworks from a from an industry standard perspective and a reporting perspective. But what about from a documentation perspective? You and I both have to go through vendor assessments or do vendor assessments on vendors within our organization. And I don't think I've never ever seen two similar documents when it comes to policy and documentation.
1: No, I have not. Um, Could there be something or some standardization? Uh, Again, I'm, I'm hesitant to say yes. You know why I'm hesitant to say yes? Because, and why am I such a fan of CIS 20 versus a policy or standard? I think because maybe, and I could be wrong with this, is that I believe there's some art involved in good policies and standards, like writing a good book. There's no framework for here's your book. Great. Let me just throw in my story. Yeah, there's a great point. There's an outline. There's a format, a way that you tell a story. But the story itself, there's some creative aspects to it. And the way that I do my policies and standards, we get everybody in that room and we write them, is very specific and key to that, to the company The vertical that we're in, our compliance requirements, everything. So the words on page, I don't think are going to align. But you could have, like, an outline or a flow or a way to organize your policies and standards.
0: Yeah, I I should be taking notes during all this. Oh wait, I can play this back later. You can always play this back later. Uh, uh, But but I will say this: Um, we do need some standard in security that is universal across the board, whether it be documentation. Because it, it, what it does is it kind of aligns all of us CISOs in, and puts us in uniform, right? Which helps us contend better with, you know, councils, with auditors, with executive leadership, and even within our own staff. Having some level of standardization gives us some continuity within, you know, within us all working together because at the end of the day you know i love it when people say yeah we've got to do a security audit or or you know we want to integrate these guys in let's send them to the security checklist and i'm like fine let's do that but it'd be much easier if we just got on the phone with them for an hour <laughs> yes right it would save everyone a ton of excel spreadsheets it would save everyone a ton of time and just you know let me get on the phone with them and and, and let us just have an conversation for 60 minutes and and then from there we can ask for some supporting documents to support our conversation yes it would speed it all up but that's but that's really not the case and so it's it's almost like if we did have a standard it might make life easier for us in that aspect at least in documentation where if if every document kind of had a had a, had a specific base to it and had some some standard, I'm not saying it's gotta be a copy paste policy, but everything kind of still has its own format. It has its own way of, of, of being looked at and processed. It does create some level of, it makes people's lives who have to look at security much easier.
1: Yeah. And so I I do want to, I'm going to, I'm going to challenge that notion a little bit. I I think we're speaking the same thing, but I just have a different twist on it or a little bit of a twist is so when I, when I think of, of a good standard, or a framework is, let's, let's talk SIG. Nobody who's outside of security is gonna understand what a SIG is, right. or the 450 <laughs> questions and responses in that. If you create this framework for what's all the things you gotta do in security and you put in your policies and standards, it's gonna become unreadable or unusable by the common layman or the common, so it's that, how do you bridge security experts like us that it has everything that we want and a standard we can understand across industries and across companies to something that that employee, John, is gonna be able to easily read and understand. And say, oh, that's what I need to do, or this is how I, what I need to do for that. Because when I hand them my security stuff, they're not gonna read that. I wrote my standards and policies specifically so that the lowest common denominator of employee with a basic education in computers <laughs> can understand it.
0: No, and that that's a really, really good point, which is when you talk about terminology, but I think we don't have to th- look too hard to find that precedent because IT's already done it, right? So think of IT policies 20 years ago or 15 years ago were so complex and um, and difficult and kind of isolated the non-techie, non-computer people from being able to do anything IT. And then over time, IT adapted, the user adapted, and a common language was born, and the same has to be done through security, and that's only done through the maturity of security, right? That's not going to happen overnight. There's, you know, if if we take the uh, top 25 CISOs in our industry and we lock you all in a hotel room for two weeks and say, "Come out with a standard," I think we're going to come out with a bunch of uh, bearded, tired, exhausted, beaten security folks who are going to be like this is all we could agree on. And it might be like you said, two pages, 14 statements. And then again, we go down that same route because we tend to kind of go down the rabbit holes as security people, right? I work in the financial industry, so I've got PCI and all these, you know, and Infinra and an FSI SAC mm-hmm. and all those different things. Whereas someone who's in healthcare, I've got HIPAA and high trust and, You know, someone else somewhere else has has their whole different set of standards. And if you're in the military and in the defense, now you've got CMMC. And so you've got all these different kind of things. And people go, well, it's based on industry. We got to look at security based on industry. And I kind of disagree with that notion. I think that's why we lose the battle in the boardroom. I think part of the reason why security loses the battle in the boardroom is because we as an industry can't. Just say no, it has nothing to do with industry. Yes, different industries have different regulations, but the same could be applied to any other part of the business. Right? A CFO for a bank has a lot more financial responsibility than let's say a CFO for a high, for a technology company. And a CFO at a publicly traded company has a whole new set of responsibilities than a CFO at a private company. With with you know with non-public stakeholders. So there are parodies that exist within different roles but they found the almost standard way to work this and we have to do the same in security and I think that's going to be where where we're really going to get our real work done and break down some of those barriers what do you think yeah I like it what do you think it's going to do it first sans negative uh, I, don't, I don't think it's maybe. you know what I think it's going to be it's going to end up being a cluster of practitioners like us who all say okay we're done with this we're all going to come together we're going to put out a standard we're going to push it onto the vendors the people who we spend money with so that they push it out across their organizations that that way it gets pushed out as an industry because what is high trust high trust isn't a regulator high trust isn't a regulator standard Oh, it's a money-making machine. <laughs> did it's, I say that out loud? <laughs> you, you did, but but that's exactly what it, it's it's a money-making machine that was developed within the industry to create a standard that was beyond HIPAA, right? And eventually, it, what's what's going to ha- have to happen in security is we have to come together as practitioners and take you know the Paul loves the Gary Hay slips the you know Jasons the 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 Tim Callahan's you know and and and. And, and the Mark Hops and those guys and go, all right, guys, we've got to come up with some standards. And we want to create some level of standard that unifies it, one, in terms of reporting to the board, number two, in terms of documentation. Right. A flow that we know that if 30 of us worked on it and then it became a consortium of 200 different contributors and we pushed it out and we got big vendors to support it and push it out. And we all said, this is how we're gonna work going forward. We can get more adoption quicker and we can I mean, create something that becomes a standard.
1: There's a huge appetite in the market for that. You know, how many, how many people, when they're trying to write their policies, don't have even a, a starting point and they go to information security policies made easy version 18. <laughs> And download right. this nightmare of a template that you know is all that there is so i know that there's a huge market for that
0: yeah and I a, huge- mean, a, a, a lot of times you know it's it's we, i'll call people like you hey jason i'm trying to work on 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 this little piece of document. do you have anything i could look at as a reference as i write my own because i don't even know where to get started yeah right uh, and 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 that's That's how some people get their policies is they end up calling their peers and, hey, let me send you something I wrote two versions ago. That'll be a good starting point for you. Three versions ago. What's the maturity level of your organization? Because like you said, policy is a piece of art and it matures and different people appreciate art with time differently. (laughs) True. Right? So, So kind of taking it that way. Let's talk about leadership for a little bit. Um, I typically always start with leadership, but with you, I kind of wanted to to kind of go down this path and then then really go into leadership, which is
1: documentation you know, is not the sexy thing people want to talk about. So I'm glad we did.
0: Well, I'm passionate not about be, it, but 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 it's critical for people to talk about it, right? You can't have a security program without documentation.
1: You'd be surprised; people will say that they do, and it, I think that's practice more. Yeah, absolutely, I would agree. You can't, but. There are plenty of companies that would say, oh yeah, here's our security program. And it's tribal knowledge. Or it's a set of policies that haven't been dusted off in five years. Well, it's And it's, they were written by an auditor.
0: So I, I counter that with saying, how would you feel if DevOps did no unit testing on anything they put out?
1: Um, you'd be surprised or some company. Well, you, you probably aren't surprised. But there are companies that think they have DevOps and they don't do unit testing.
0: Yeah. So, But agree, there's a,
1: the right way to do it. And then... The right way to do it is you start with your policies, in my opinion.
0: Right, but, you know, but, but exactly. I agree with you. Yeah. Totally support that. So let's talk a little bit about leadership. So, you know, leadership plays a really significant role, you know, actually within, you know, policy setting and documentation. Um, so, so talk a little bit about what you do from a leadership perspective to really lead the conversation and really build a executable, defensible policy?
1: So from a leadership perspective, and I'm going to talk from, uh, I really focus on the team. In fact, i give you my entire sort of leadership mantra, um, which is that how your teams make decisions is more important than the decisions themselves. And I focus wholly on that. I mean, you'll see a bunch of stuff shooting off from this, but it all comes down to in multiple ways, Frameworks, books, ideas that I'm sure everyone on this class, as I I sort of spew them out during our conversation, have heard of five dysfunctions of a team, one of the best frameworks to pull from, that idea of trust being at the bottom, that your team has to trust each other. Things like Drive by Daniel Pink, I studied JFK and the Bay of Pigs, the Cuban Missile Crisis, and they all come across these same sort of themes that are really tied into the basic basic five dysfunctions, which means the first thing you got to start off with on any team is trust. And this goes into, this is going to be like trust. What does that have to do with documentation to build a creative process? You need to have trust and conflict. You know, you talk to IDEO, that famous uh, company in San Jose that created the Razor Mouse. They're a creative ideation company. And that's all they do is come up with ideas. And it's all about having a team together in a room that has the safety to be able to debate ideas. You're not debating people. You're debating the idea. Are we coming to the best decision? What should this statement say? This is an example of if I'm in that room writing it, what should this say? I got to be able to disagree with what you're writing to get to a better answer. And to be able to disagree like that, you got to have trust. And trust starts with the leader, actually, the entire whole team thinks. So, Are um, you familiar with extreme, extreme leadership? Uh, Jocko Sims, I think. Yeah, and, I am. Yeah, great book. Great. The whole idea is that as the leader and as the CISO of your team, you are wholly 100% responsible for how your team performs. So I take that upon myself to build that trust. I start by showing that I'm vulnerable, that I can say, you know what? I F up all the time. I make a mistake a day, if not three mistakes a day. The idea that you remove fear from your team that they're okay to make mistakes, that I can't, I'm going to say literally can't stand when I see leaders chew out teams for making a mistake. Sure, if you made 10 mistakes in a row, I get it. Maybe something needs to be done. They're like, yeah, I can't believe that guy pushed that button or that guy made that code change and pushed to production without testing. Like, you know, mistakes are going to happen. If you get these people so afraid to do their job, they're not going to be able to – they're going to be working from a place of fear. So I absolutely make fear removal is an aspect of that trust. And then you start, once you build trust in your team, which isn't like you can't just have a trust fall, which is another thing that I hate, or these, you know, the very fluffy leadership, hey, let's just all catch each other and you have one good weekend and then all of a sudden, okay, I've got my trust in team. It takes time and it takes practice and you as the leader, by demonstrating and leading by example, start that process. And over months, you get your team to trust you and trust each other. And then that opens the door for things where you can have healthy conflict debates. And the creativity part, especially around writing documentation, believe it or not, is a creative exercise. How we got such good policies and standards was us in that room for three days had some great conflict and debate. You've heard of a TV show called Sid Caesar's uh, Show of Shows back in the 50s. It was like the pinnacle of comedy and 50s television. It had all the great writers on it. Mel Brooks, Carl Reiner were all in this writer's room. And the writer's room was known for just having these drag out brawl of conflict debates about the writing but some of the most creative television came out of that and it was all left in the room. It was the topic that they're arguing, they're not debating each other, but they would literally come in. And it was a great story where I think it was uh, Carl Reiner that had the effigy of Mel Brooks. You know, they were making fun of him. They had him hanging from the cylinder cause they didn't like the script that he wrote for the last show. And, and then they'd go out and have beers afterwards. But that is something that I instill in my team today at every team that I have. And that we're gotta be open, gotta be able to conflict and then there's an important role, too, that I think a lot of leaders leave out called the devil's advocate, which is a great role that you absolutely must have in any decision-making process. When you're deciding, let's say you're deciding on a new SIM product. You're like, hey, we like logarithm. I oh, mean, it's the best. Splunk's too expensive, and the whole team is going down this path. If you don't have somebody that comes in to make sure that there's not cognitive biases at play, that the team isn't doing it just because I'm CISO and I like logarithm, you assign someone to specifically poke holes in the direction the team is going and the decision they're going down. And that's part of that conflict. And the devil's advocate got, was started, what, back in the uh, first century, 1000, I think, when they had uh, Pope Leo started the devil's advocate. I don't know if you knew the numbers, but from when they had the, um, they would w- the church would want to canonize a saint, and they would get everybody in a room and decide, most of the time, it was always on board with, yeah, because everybody was like, this person's great. They bring people from the region. They go, yeah, this guy, like, he he got water to this thing, and he he, he should be definitely canonized. So Pope Leo said, well, it feels like there's this, we're all wanting to agree with him because everything's great. We want everybody to wish the best. But he assigned the role of devil's advocate, which was the technical, the literal translation was promoter of the faith, specifically to poke mm-hmm. holes in that. To ensure that they're making the right decision, and over this, from 1000 to 1978, when Pope John Paul got rid of the devil's advocacy, I think about 450 popes were canonized during John Paul's reigns when they got rid of the devil's advocacy. 480. So you can see that control for almost a thousand, you know, 900 years was put in place, really reduced, and made sure that they were making good decisions. And then, as soon as you release that, you just go with this idea of groupthink. You come to bad decisions. So I don't make any decision in a silo. My entire team has a say in it. I feel like I talked for like an hour there. (laughs) Um,
0: You did not You said so many good things in there. I want to kind of break it down for just a second for our listeners. You said one sentence early on, which is, it's not the decision that my team makes, but it's how they make the decision that I care about. Yes. Which is, you know, obviously the idea of debate. And you brought up the idea of coordinated debate. You brought the idea of the example of, you know, the show in the 1950s and all these great egomaniac writers and comedians of the time, you know, all sitting in one room and all kind of working towards not being the best, but putting out the best. Yes. Right. And there's, there's, that's a collective rather than an individual.
1: Yes, and, and, and not. Go ahead. Uh, not just the collective, but it's it's. There's a lot of, there's so many cognitive biases at play when you get a group in a room and the idea of groupthink. Um, another, I brought it up earlier. JFK. If you ever, ever get a chance, if you're listening to this, read about JFK's leadership style and how he changed it between the Bay of Pigs to the Cuban Missile Crisis. The Bay of Pigs was a you know foreign fiasco for us because decision making was flawed. You know he had all these people deciding hey let's go in and let's do this activity never got proper feedback never vetted some of the responses had no counterpoint had no devil's advocate he then changed the entire way he made the decision when it came to the cuban missile crisis and instilled things as he made bobby kennedy and i forgot the other dude's name maybe the other guy played devil's advocate he removed everybody from the cabinet room i don't know if you knew this but the he had everybody for during the cube during the bay of pigs everybody was meeting in the cabinet room the cabinet room is ranked is by rank you know if you're the sec- you're the secretary of defense you're really high secretary of state right next to the president secretary of agriculture i think was outside <laughs> it was all based <laughs> on rank he got rid of that he said in this work so we made him go to the state department to meet and everyone was equal he said everyone has an equal say everyone is expected to input no matter what level you're at no matter who you are you need to have input to this and then he instilled this two guys as the devil's advocate to say your job your only job bobby is to go poke holes in their theory. Then he made these two teams take on not only their opinion of what they thought should be done, but then write a paper on it as president and then swap those papers with the other team to go see what the opposing team was saying and write back and say, this is what I think the problem with your decision was. But again, it was that he he ingrained that conflict through the devil's advocacy. He put conflict into the rooms by making sure that everyone was equal and can speak their minds. And I do the same thing as CISO. As CISO, you shouldn't listen to me because I'm CISO. The lowest level employee, my analyst, tier one analyst, absolutely has a say in our decision-making process.
0: Yeah, uh, if more people enacted that style of leadership, there's two things about that style of leadership that are very critical. One is time management, and the other thing is getting everyone to play by the same rules, right? Because oftentimes, you know, leaders try this and fail at it, and they fail at it because they lack to create the definition of the collective, so what ends up happening is you have individuals trying to brownbeat other individuals into a method of thinking. And we see that today even beyond just, you know, the conference room style debate. It's happening on social media. We see it happening across anything. If someone disagrees with you, um, it's oftentimes they're not smart enough or they don't see everything to where a lot of people who play the devil's advocate will be quiet. And I think the biggest challenge of COVID has been the idea of when you're in a boardroom, like you said, if if I lock my team in a hotel room for three days and we're having debate and you're being observant as a leader, you can see someone's body language, the way they moved in their chair like you just did, right? Getting comfortable or sitting back or... Th- th- there's there's a level of reaction in body language that allows you to understand that that person has something to say and they're not saying it either because they're afraid to say it because of the, re- the reaction it might garner or they don't believe they can defend their point.
1: Effectively. And, yep, and I, that, that I've witnessed that problem and it's the the way that I you handle it as a leader and it ultimately is the leader's job to mine for conflict. That's the term that you need to go looking for that and you need to get them in a safe place and say, hey, John, I I noticed you hadn't said anything and I actually noticed that you were screaming. Did you have have something in your mind? I feel like there's something you might want to share. Obviously, you don't just jump into a room at this. You've had to have that trust built up with the team and represent as a leader that they can trust you and you have their best intentions at heart for me then to be able to say something like that to John and call him out in the meeting. You also say that ahead of time too. You say, "Hey everybody, you guys, you guys know my practice. I actually make my teams, my teams at my offsites, we spend the first half day, we've studied JFK, we've studied the Man Gulch another good story about leadership, the Man Gulch fire of 1949. I use these like case studies to go through as a team. The Google AdWords story about how Larry Page ran Google back in the early days and everybody played hockey and was you were expected to be able to challenge and debate Larry. Like cuz everybody was equal, so we go walk through these cases together and then jump into the offsite and start. So it's also set as a primer that it's, hey, this is normal expected right. behavior of our team.
0: But but that's so critical, and that's a step that a lot of people overlook. They kind of want to go with the theory, the I want to get everyone in a room and I'm going to lay out a bunch of Red Bulls and cookies and donuts and, pizza. and cream cheese and pizza, and now let's all debate, right? Let's all try to yeah. solve a problem, but there's, no, you know, I I do a lot of debate, especially in geopolitics, because that's one of the things I often talk about at universities or, or, or to a bunch of different people because of my background. And I always say that when people are, when I'm invited to go to a debate where maybe I'm debating someone who disagrees with my point of view, my first question is what are the guidelines to the debate? Because if someone's going to throw, if you're going to start off with a slur, then we're not debating. We're just going to accuse. Yep. Yeah, set the ground rules. Set the ground rules first, and that's so critical. Hearing you say that about saying, hey, we're going to go through this use case before you even go there. We're going to talk about setting the rules and what the rules are and how, you know, the kind of conversation we expect people to have is very, very, very important. Because if you don't do that, you end up in a place where um, the team fractions almost into like an episode of Survivor. Right. You've got different groups and all these groups start kind of electing their own leaders. And then those leaders try to lead a conversation and 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 you end up in a two party system. And I don't want a two party system. Yeah, I completely agree. The
1: the leaders want to jump ahead to, oh, yeah, I get this. I don't need to worry about, you know, reading about five. I don't need to make my team read five dysfunctions. Guess what? I make my team read five dysfunctions. They understand you lay the groundwork. I don't need to build trust with my team for three months. I can just jump into an offsite and start debating. No, you need to build that trust as a leader. It needs to be a behavior pattern that you run and you ensure that they trust you. You build that trust over time to get you to that level of okay. And then you explain, here's what conflict and debate needs and here's why it's important. Here's let's go look at the Mount Everest and why you know no conflict and debate led to the 1996 you know into uh, thin air, which is another great story, another story about like information asymmetry. So you do all these practices, you take your bold knowledge and you don't just slam it on them. You give, you know, maybe six months, (laughs) I'm ballparking a roadmap of what it would take for me, what it took for me to get my team to fully trust each other, to be able to be uh, at the level that we're at.
0: I love this conversation so much, but we're almost out of time. So I want to be respectful of that. I, I want to ask you one more question, then we're going to go into my favorite part of the podcast, which is our CISO Insight round. So... Looking ahead at the CISO role over the next few years, what skills do you see CISOs really needing to have in order to succeed in their role?
1: Presentation skills. Yeah. Uh, And that goes both for written and graphic and in-person public speaking.
0: I completely, I completely agree. Presentation skills. I would also say communication skills. Um, Yeah. Beyond anything, pick your words in, you know, in your presentation. I love, uh, I saw, I was helping a peer of ours, um, a few, a, a few weeks ago with their presentation and I was like, Hey, it's great. But I just changed a bunch of stuff and they go, what'd you change? I was like all your all cap stuff or you know, <laughs> some, some of the fonts you were using or the colors of the fonts you were selecting. And they go, why is that? And I go, well, you want to make it professional and easy on the eyes. And yes, you want to raise awareness for specific, parts of or or things that you need within your um security program but you don't want to do it in dramatic fashion you kind of want to do it with elegance and with style and let your voice let your tone let your passion be what they what they agree with and not you know all caps red font you know 36 size on a powerpoint (laughs) don't don't let that be what they see right um well-intentioned very good but but learning that sometimes it's better to communicate vocally um, is, is is much better, much, much better.
1: Yeah, you know, that's a. you just brought up a great topic. Uh, real quick, the, probably my biggest lesson learned as CISO is when to pick up the phone. I never picked up the phone enough times. I'd rely on email or written word and realize you lose context. There's so much more when you just talk on the phone. And as, as CISO, it's gone tenfold to where I just go, hey, can we just zoom real quick? <laughs>
0: Yeah, do a Zoom or pick up the phone call yeah. um, yep. is 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 critical. All right, folks, time for my favorite part of the podcast, the CISO Insight Round. Jason is going on the hot seat. Jason, I hope you're ready. Six questions. You kind of have to answer them pretty quick. There's a clock ticking. I'm kidding. There's no clock ticking. This is purely <laughs> so for fun. All right. Um, so... Let's start off with one buzzword you'd love to bury in my buzzword graveyard.
1: Automation.
0: Automation. Okay. Why? Just because it can be
1: automated doesn't mean it needs to be.
0: I like that. That is that is really good. What's one technology that'll change the way we do cybersecurity?
1: Okay, how about virtual phone? So you will no longer have a device that you carry with you. You will interact with that virtual device through the environment.
0: That's a first. That's a first. That's very interesting. Kind of changing the whole idea of devices.
1: Yeah, you won't have. In my opinion, you won't have a device. Everything—the Alexa, my computer screen, my car, somebody else's car—you know talking who about I am.
0: The environment of IoT.
1: Yes, will become a mesh network of sensor input where that's what I interact with, not a physical device I own.
0: Very interesting. The last book you read?
1: Um, it was Simon Sinek's The
0: Infinite Game. Last Great movie book you saw. Milan on Sunday. Milan. Very interesting. I will refrain from commenting on that film. Um, What's I'm the, sure a lot could be said about it. <laughs> there 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 are f- extreme challenges with Milan um from a from from a lot of different, you know, angles and 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 so forth, but you know, the story as itself as a book, it's a great story and it's a great book. Um the last film was a bit disappointing.
1: Yeah, I like the cartoon much better. I will agree with that. Yeah. You know, as a quality just the quality of the movie itself. Not making any judgment I'm, about. I'm, I'm kind messages. of.
0: You know, I know, I know you're, I know you're in California and you're, you're in LA, but I, I, I love to write letters to Disney sometimes and say, "Will you please stop making animated movies in real life? I don't want to see oh, yeah, that's actor, great, now. yeah, right? Like I don't, know. don't do Aladdin in human form. Keep it as a cartoon. Improve your CGI. Get some good voiceover, and 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 just play it out yeah (laughs) please i don't want to see any actor in tights you know and and like you know stuff trying to be a disney character it's a it's it's a bit irritating what's your favorite music um like genre yeah oh uh
1: that's an interesting question um probably edm like empire of the sun
0: yeah that's really, really interesting. I'm glad. Uh, <laughs> I love it. You, you just right away went right to EDM. Most people go, well, depends on my mood and whatnot. But you're just like, no, no, EDM. I'm part the that man. It's pretty straightforward. I love it. For, for those watching, um, typically um, I, I give these questions ahead of time. But with Jason, I didn't want to kind of wanted to keep him on the hook. I kind of wanted to see if people, you know, how, how he'd deal with it. So, so I'm glad I did. And definitely like, real answers and
1: spontaneous. I'm not. I'm yes, not I know.
0: It's great. People can tell. People can tell by your voice. So what's one thing you took away from the COVID-19 crisis?
1: Oh, um, how much, I mean, I already knew this, the, the, the interaction with people in real life. You know, the idea that oh yeah I can zoom and we can have a virtual team was a big. Uh, I gave it a lot more weight. Now I I need those and I know I even talked about it in a room and the tactile nature of how I how you communicate and how you organize and you mentioned it with the visualization of posture and how you're sitting and the body language. So much is lost in Zoom communication with my team and my team building that I'm to be honest I'm a little lost right now. I mean that nicely. I'll figure it out. We'll figure out how to over, you know, hopefully vaccines come out. It'll be great
0: in 2021,
1: way better in 2020. But in the meantime, it's a struggle.
0: Yeah, it's, um, um, I know that this week, the UK started their vaccine. I know that the FDA is pretty much greenlit the Pfizer, Pfizer vaccine here in the States. Um, so hopefully we'll, you know, according to HHS Secretary Azar, no relation in our last names. Um, Although we're both from Georgia, so it's really, really funny. Um, um, He said that they're ready once the FDA greenlights it within 72 hours, they're ready to start vaccinations.
1: That's fantastic. So that
0: means that it's supposed to get vaccinated on December 9th. It's supposed to get approved by the FDA December 9th, technically, which means by Friday... Or Saturday, we could start to see the first vaccines being given. And allegedly, the first person to get the vaccine on live TV is going to be President Trump. And then it's going to be followed by um, the three former presidents um, Clinton, Bush, and Obama. And I think Jimmy Carter is also like, I think all five of them are going to be kind of the first to take it kind of on TV. Boy, give it to show. Carter first. That guy. Is he almost a hundred now and he's still building houses? He's I, amazing. Yeah, Carter's in his nineties. He's it's really uh, funny. I'll tell you something. Um, as a, as a resident of Georgia, every once in a while, if I'm driving, um, to Augusta or I'm going over to Columbus or Fort Benning, I'll run into his uh, secret service, uh, taking him somewhere. Um, yeah. and so I'll run into his, uh, his, the, the, the two suburbans that drive him around the secret service. And so, um, and, and, I've been at a few events at his presidential library here in Atlanta, where he was speaking. And it's, it's very interesting. Um, You know, I I wasn't very big on Carter's politics. Um, I I actually disagree with 95% of his politics. Um, But I appreciate him as a person. Yeah. His work with Habitat Humanity just shows how it's done. The guy's 98. I mean, that's, that's someone who took his, um, the, the power of his role and, instead of enriching himself, he kind of really did focus on what else can he do? And he's hasn't been yeah. president for 40 years and he still does a lot of work. And so, um, that is one aspect that I can respect about president, you know, Carter that I think, uh, you know, irregardless of politics, you got to appreciate the person and, and president Carter yeah. was, is an amazing human being. Always help others, man. That's yeah. I mean, long. he's, he's unbelievable in that aspect. Um, perfect. Jason, thanks so much for coming on the podcast, man. We James, thanks for having it. me. That's it. We're done folks. Thanks so much uh to Jason. Thanks so much to our uh, great sponsors and supporters of the podcast. Without them this would not be possible. So make sure to check them out. They are in the links their links to their, you know, products and everything is is below on the website. So you guys can check them out and And if you need something, you know, reach out to them and and let them know that you heard of them through our show. So that way they know and continue to support us in the future. We're signing off for this week. We'll be back with more um, here as we wrap up 2020 and move into 2021. I've got some great 2021 news coming your way as well. I'll be doing that in a separate podcast. It'll be live. It'll be on LinkedIn and YouTube. So you'll want to tune in for that. Until then, Jason, thank you very much. Genki Genki thank you desuka, which is thank you in Japanese folks learn a little bit of language All right, that's it for us here we'll be back with more until, then, until next week folks stay healthy and stay cyber safe and Merry Christmas and Happy Holidays to all make sure to subscribe to our podcast and share it with your friends and colleagues and get all the latest information at cyberhubpodcast.com